This is one of those days where I have more sermon than I have time. But I want to take a little time on this Thanksgiving weekend, or weekend before Thanksgiving, better said, to express my appreciation to the Lord and to you. I am so thankful for being part of this church. And uh, God has blessed us immeasurably, blessed me particularly as I consider the church and the staff with which I'm privileged to work. So I love Thanksgiving anyway, but especially this, this year. Children, you know, have a unique capacity to reveal human nature in the rawest of forms. Take, for instance, some letters that children wrote to their pastor. Now, I, let me just give you a, a little kind of a point of reference here. I, I, but these, these are just too good to pass up. And I want you to listen again for the way children reveal human nature in the rawest of forms. This is a letter to his pastor by a young boy named Arnold who was eight years of age. This is what he said, I know that God loves everybody, but he has never met my sister. <laughs> Stephen, age eight, I would like to go to heaven someday because I know my brother won't be there. <laughs> now, I hope that you're beginning to see a pattern, even after just two of them, as to what part of human nature these children are showing us. This is from Loreen, who was nine years of age when she wrote a letter to her pastor that said this, I think a lot more people would come to your church if you moved it to Disneyland. <laughs> I'll stop with this one. This is from Joshua. He's the old kid of the bunch. He was 10 years old when he wrote. My father says I should learn the Ten Commandments. But I don't think I want to because we have enough rules already in my house. <laughs> the part of human nature that those letters, those unguarded, raw kind of insights into human nature, that common thread for us seems to be that we prefer a religion that is filtered through the language of personal preference. I want what I want. I like what I like. And as long as following Jesus fits into that, then I'll play along. But if he crosses over with his expectations and wants me to be something or do something that doesn't fit my personal preference, then I'm out. Hayden Shaw wrote a book not too long ago entitled Generational IQ. And in this book, uh, the author begins to process through these different generations that we have during our time. Because of the expanding uh, life expectancy, we, we have more generations alive at one time now probably than any other point in history, uh, at least in modern history. And uh, that creates some problems in churches. It creates problems as people figure out what style of worship to do and what's acceptable and what's not. And, you know, just as a case in point, uh, if, if you're one of those who looks at somebody with a phone in church and they're looking at it during church and, and it upsets you, it may well be that that person actually has their Bible on their phone. 
You see, that hit me when I was uh, a pastor in South Texas, and we were calling a young man to be our youth minister, and he came in and he preached, and through the course of his sermon, he would stop and he would pick up his cell phone and look at it and put it down. I was thinking to myself, what is this knucklehead doing? (laughs) And then Teresa wisely and observantly reminded me or pointed out to me that he didn't wear a wristwatch, and so he was using his phone as a timing device. Well, that, that got too personal for me. Any kind of timing device on a sermon, it can't be a good. I see the clock. You're okay. <laughs> Back to Hayden Shaw. Generational IQ, he says, that we have in this day and age a prevailing philosophy, a philosophy of life in church and especially our Christian lives, and that is, he calls it this, the be good, feel good, live your life the way you want because God is watching out for you model. It is that model like those children said that, okay, so, so I, I'm okay with going to heaven because my brother won't be there. It has nothing to do with what God says about it. It's what fits me. I call it the cafeteria plan of spirituality. I'll take a little bit of this, and, and I like that, but Uh, not for today. Maybe I'll get that next time, and I'm certainly not going to have that. I won't have any of that. Thank you very much. And so, if we're not careful like those children, we begin to fashion our spiritual lives and our Christian following of Jesus along these lines of self-preference, personal preference. It's what I want. It's not what Jesus requires. And that that puts us in, in some really problematic positions. We're in Matthew chapter 5. As a matter of fact, this is the last message in this series that we've been doing. We have gone a long ways into the Sermon on the Mount, but we have much further to go. But we'll begin our Christmas series next week, and then in January we'll do some other things and maybe return to the Sermon on the Mount eventually. But in the last paragraph of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus lays something out for us. Well, let me just take you back in your childhood. We'll read in in Matthew 5 in just a few moments. Um, But let me take you back to your childhood. Uh, Most of us played the game tag when we were kids. You remember how that goes, right? Somebody is designated as it, and that person has to run around and chase other people and tag them. And if they tag them, then they transfer the responsibility off to somebody else, and that person has to run around and chase people. And and the goal is not to be it. The goal is to run around and not be the one selected, because if you're slow and fat, like some preachers are, you'll never catch anybody. And the game gets to be a lot less fun. Well, let me just give us a collective tag you're it from Jesus here. We've been looking through these six different truth statements that, that serve as examples. Jesus is illustrating in this last part, and he's driving the application home for us of, of the basic point of the, sermon, of the Sermon on the Mount, which is unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so because we have trouble locking down what that means, Jesus lays out six different truth statements as examples. 
And most of us, as we have seen, can kind of pick and choose. We, we can dodge the tag when it comes to divorce, or we can dodge the tag when it comes to adultery or murder, but Jesus now saves the best for last, and collectively he tags us and says, you're it, you can't get away from this one. Or at least I suspect you can't. I know I can't. We find that in verse 43, Matthew 5 43, you have heard that it was said. This is, this is the formula that Jesus has been using. And with this formula, he has been reaching back into their, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures. And, and uh, for them, the Hebrew law, as it was given to Moses and lived out through the centuries with the children of Israel, he has reached back. And this time he reaches back and says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Let me just stop for a minute. Let's own what we should own here. That would be a great memory verse, wouldn't it? Not, not the first part, just the second part. Love your enemies, excuse me, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. That's a convenient memory verse. We don't really have to memorize it because we live in a society that celebrates that. I'll dig on that in just a few moments. Let's go ahead and finish this out a little bit. Jesus says, again, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he's going to give us the other side of that for a moment, but I think maybe we should stop and just acknowledge uh, you're not going to find that verse as a verse. In other words, with Jesus, what we've done, he started off in these six different truth statement examples by pointing to specific passages of Scripture, many of them listed in the Ten Commandments, or some of them listed in the Ten Commandments. And then after that, we've had a couple where Jesus goes backwards and he kind of gathers several passages, he mashes them up together, and he gives us a statement that captures the Old Testament teaching of that and the way the scribes and the Pharisees and religious tradition had twisted those. But now Jesus reaches into their experience. You'll not find love your neighbor and hate your enemy laid out as a directive anywhere in the Old Testament. Oh, you'll, you'll find examples of that. You don't have to go any further than Cain and Abel to figure out that society from its earliest points of reference was built on this idea that those people that we call our neighbors, I'll talk about that in a moment, those people we can love them, but I don't have to love everybody. There are people who are out there that are my enemies. I don't have to love them. This little passage is full of the need to clarify our terminology here. Because the, the, the common thread in human nature throughout history is that we love those that we love and we hate those that we don't love. I know that I'm talking to a church crowd and hate seems to be a pretty strong word for us. We bristle a little bit at it and say, I don't know if I would say I hate them. I just dislike them strongly. <laughs> We find it played out in Scripture but not endorsed by Jesus, this whole idea. But what do we do with those that we hate? One of the things that we do as a society with those people that are out there as opposed to in here near me is that we attack them. 
Let me just offer up, and I'm going to give you an assignment for your Thanksgiving week. If you're not already thankful for something, let me just assign you about an hour's worth of watching national media every day. You don't have to look very far. I am not being political here. I want you to understand that. Let me prove it to you. Uh, All you have to do is look at the broad spectrum of the national media as it relates to how they relate to the president of the United States. Not just the current one, but all of them for the last 40 or 50 years. If you listen long enough, you will find that no matter the political affiliation of an individual, there are those people out there who consider that person an enemy, and the way they handle that is they attack. And it's character assassination. It's all kinds of things like that. Again, I'm not being political. I'm just being observant. That's how we do things in our society. We love this as a memory verse if we're just looking at society at large. Those people that I love are my neighbors. I love them. But those people who are not in my love circle, I just don't have any use for them, and I'll attack them if I have to do that. Jesus says, hold on a second. Not acceptable if you're a follower of his. Another thing that we do with people that we hate is that we dismiss them as inferior we dehumanize them. I heard with my own two ears, small as they are, I heard with my own two ears a church leader a number of years ago who was dealing with somebody or about somebody who was coming at them and attacking them verbally and trying to erode the support for that particular church leader and that particular church. And the church leader said this, that person doesn't even Uh, Well, let me rephrase that. The the way they actually said it was that person is not important enough to justify having an opinion. (laughs) Jesus says, hold on a second. But the way I just explained those two examples of how we function actually fits perfectly with first century Jewish life. Jesus in this one verse captures those two elements as it played itself out in everyday first century Jewish life. Love, let me clarify some terminology now. Love, as Jesus uses it here, means to favor or to give preference to. It is, if we're going to use the word prejudice here, we would say this is a prejudice for somebody. For instance, I love the Dallas Cowboys. I thought sure we would have applause over that. (laughs) No, no, I wasn't asking for it. I just thought we would. I love the Dallas Cowboys. Show preference towards, to favor, all right? That is in contrast to the Philadelphia Evils. Ooh. Or the Green Bay Packers. I had a family member at one time. She's not anymore, but uh, she and I had an ongoing feud. She loved that little high school team out of New England called the Patriots. And I was a Cowboys fan, and I ate a lot of crow with her. Love. 
to prefer or to favor. Jesus, in quoting or in speaking into, says, you shall love your neighbor to favor them, to show preference for them. That is the human way. But hate here is the opposite of that. When we talk about hate, we want to lock it in to this emotional kind of a thing. I just hate Brussels sprouts. Okay, that's a true statement, right? I love the Cowboys, but I hate Brussels sprouts and liver and beets. Hate them, okay? But it's not, it's just an emotional thing for me. That's not the kind of hate that Jesus is talking about here. Hate here is just the opposite of the way he talks about love there. This is not an emotion. It means to shun or to reject or to neglect. So I hate the Philadelphia Eagles because they're not nice to the Dallas Cowboys. Or they won't be tonight. Then, as Jesus was speaking these words just like now in our society, we have a problem with hating people that we don't love. If you're not one of my favorites, then you're rejected. I know it sounds like I'm pushing this, and maybe I am just a little bit, but it comes back to us on this thing. As I said earlier, you will not find that first part of, or the second part of verse 43 as a directive anywhere in Scripture. God never tells us that we can love to prefer our own while we shun and neglect those who are not our own. That's not one of those things that Scripture says is okay for us, and that's why Jesus jumps into this. Let me read a little bit more here, and I'm going to come back and flesh this out some more. But verse 44, but I say to you, here's the formula. Jesus has been saying, you have heard that it was said. Here's the way you normally do it, especially the scribes and Pharisees, the religionists of his day. You've heard that, but I'm telling you something different. Here is a new standard or a full, uh, fulfilled standard for you. But I say to you, love your enemies. Let me just stop there for a minute and say, uh, do what? Love your enemies? Somehow those children and their prayers seems a lot more inviting than this. A personal preference of religion that allows us to go with what we like and shun that that we don't like. So Jesus camps out here. It's the hardest, I think, of all of these six different truth examples that he's been giving. It's the hardest one because it's probably the one that hits closest to the center of who we are. Love your enemies. Jesus goes back and he pulls from Leviticus 19.18. I don't know that you're going to have time to turn there, but I'll read it for you. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 is the basis for this thing that Jesus is saying. Actually, I intended to read it last week and didn't have time to do it as it fit with the retaliation thing. But Leviticus 19.18 says this, you shall, uh, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But here we go. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, he says. So that pulls us back to Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies. You see, the religionists of Jesus' day, uh, they could not stomach Leviticus 19, 18. 
love your neighbor as yourself. It's just, it just doesn't, doesn't fit the way we prefer to do our religion. And so they looked for loopholes. Love your neighbor as yourself. Where's the loophole in that? And one of the great things about the religionists of Jesus' day and ours is that we're really good at creating loopholes if we can't find any. And so the way they created one here was to kind of narrow down and drill down on the definition of what uh, what a neighbor is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, okay, so if my neighbor means those people immediately around my house, our neighborhoods, we call those, then those are the people that I have to love. But by definition, if they're not my neighbor in proximity, then I don't have to love them. There's your loophole. And if I don't have to love those people who are not in my immediate proximity, then that means that it's okay for me to dismiss them, to reject them, to hold them at arm's length. That's the hate word that Jesus used. Jesus, if anything, he's a lot more than this, but if anything, Jesus is an incredible student and teacher, really, about human nature and what drives us. And he says, I'll have none of that. We know this is true because in Luke chapter 10, and I'm not going to go read this. You're going to be familiar with the reference in just a moment. But in Luke chapter 10, we have uh, this incident where a guy comes to Jesus and And he asks him, uh, who is my neighbor? But he asked him, who is is my neighbor, after he had previously asked him, so what's the biggest, greatest commandment of all? And Jesus tells him, quotes, that's the second great commandment, Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the loophole specialist said, well, who's my neighbor? Thinking that Jesus was just another ordinary scribe who couldn't work through this. Jesus proceeded to tell him the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that? And after telling this story where the anti-hero turns out to be the hero, Jesus identifies that the neighbor actually is the one who is a one. Just by virtue of the fact that he is alive makes him your neighbor. That's a different spin on this from the religionists of Jesus' day. Actually, it's a different spin on it for the religionists of our day. How are you with people on the outside? I was reflecting on this some this week, and I became really conscious of the lines that we draw in society. We, we have all kinds of lines out there, and we readily accept most of them. These lines clarify us and differentiate us from them. Now, let me give you a point of reference. Speaking of Thanksgiving, Teresa and I are especially thankful. Many of you have been praying for us that we would be able to sell our house in East Texas. Uh, we've done that. Praise the Lord. Uh, all we have to do is for it to go through about a month from tomorrow, well, exactly a month from tomorrow, that should close. And we've also, uh, in the process of buying a house here, so 
on the 22nd, a year, I mean, a month from that, we'll close on that house, and so we're going to finally get to move here. It's a great thing. Whether it's great for you, it's great for me. <laughs> but one of the things that we've done, let's just put this lines thing out here, right? Make sure that we get it. One of the things that Teresa and I have done now over the last uh, three and a half months, really more than that, we started the process online in June looking for a house, and that has taken us all over the city of El Paso and the surrounding area looking for a home. You know, one of the main questions that we get, I would say it's the, the, the question that we get more than any as we talk to people about looking for homes. Where are you going to buy a home? East side? Central? West side? Northeast? Nobody asked me if I was going to buy a home in Waters. I'm not really sure why you didn't want to know that. We draw lines, and we readily accept those lines. In El Paso, as great as we are at being great, I love this city. I love being here. But you know what? We're divided in those ways because we think that's east side, that's west side, that's northeast. And if we, hear me carefully now, if we're not careful as a church, we begin to let that seep into who we are as a people. And we, as one of the great things about being a downtown church, we're just an El Paso church, not a neighborhood community church. We're a church for all the people, for the heart of the city, we say, as we should. I just want you to make sure that we understand how, how prevalent this is, this line drawing in our society. If you want to come to my office, then you're going to have to get through some lines. Okay? We have a line that marks the whole office off. It's a door. It's got a lock on it. We have other locks on doors around here, and if you come at a certain time of the week, the only way you're going to get in is if somebody puts a break in the line so that you can make your way in. But in my office, by definition, an office is a place that is my place that is, is protected by lines. You with me so far? Let's push this out a little bit more as it relates to the rest of it. We have a line that separates Mexico from the United States, Juarez from El Paso. Let me just say, I was over there a couple of weeks ago uh, and spent the day in Juarez from one end of the city all the way to the other meeting pastors. You know what I figured out? If you want to cross that line coming back, you better have a passport with you. Our society loves to celebrate lines that divide us. They clarify us, but by definition, they also differentiate us from them. And if we're not careful, hear me very carefully now. I think this is where Jesus is driving us. If we're not careful, those who are outside of our lines easily become those who are not worthy of our love. Jesus will not allow us to let our religion be complicit in shunning and marginalizing people. He just won't. We find that in him. You remember the, the story of Jesus and the woman at the well? She was one who was outside of their lines. That's why, I mean, she was like outside of multiple lines. 
That's why when the disciples came back and saw Jesus talking to her, they were a little bit incensed about that. What are you doing talking to her? Well, talking to her was a problem for them because she was a woman first and not all that great as far as her moral character, apparently. Uh, and she was a Samaritan. Of all things, a Samaritan? That's worse than being a dog. I'd call you a Samaritan, but I like my dog too much. That's the first century Jewish perspective. Jesus says, I'm not going to let you. If you're my follower, you, you can't get away with your religion being complicit in marginalizing people. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemy. In fact, he says, pray for them. Okay, so let's be honest again. Praying for our enemies, we, we, we do that a lot of ways. Now remember, enemies here ties in to the people that are shunned. Jesus hangs a word on them that captures the thinking of the first century and the 21st century. So it's not like there's some enemy combatant in a war. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about just everyday life and those people that we reject, that we hate, the way he says that here, uh, are those people that we just kind of push out there. Those he, he uses their terminology. That's your enemy, but I'm telling you to love them. In fact, you should pray for them, but we pray for our people who are out there, who are against us. We pray for them. I, I was director, one of the co-directors of a youth camp a number of years ago, quite a few years ago now, uh, and we had this, this visiting couple who were there to provide some counsel for some troubled kids because we had a lot of troubled kids at that particular camp. And I watched this one lady as she was dealing with this girl, and this teenage girl had all kinds of issues. She was pushing the limits, I mean pushing buttons, the whole nine yards for about three days of that camp. She was just pushing everything, and I watched as this woman who was a counselor just finally got fed up with her, fed up with her, and she pulled her aside with several of us kind of in the area, and she said, I'm going to pray for you right now. And that girl, boy, she just was, you know, defensive. And the woman began to pray what she called a curse prayer. And she began to call on the resources of heaven to destroy that teenage girl. I wonder if it broke God's heart the way it broke that girl's heart to hear a follower of Jesus go after her like that. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This won't be easy. We know it just won't be easy. Because once again, Jesus puts us firmly on a one-way street in society, and we're going the other direction. In case you need a little motivation and a little rationale for this, I'll close with this. Verses 45 through 47, Jesus gives his rationale. Let me just sum it up for you so that you'll see it as I read it. Jesus says, if you don't do what I'm saying here, then you don't look like my father, and you have to look like my father. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And then Jesus drives the nail in our coffin when he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the picture here is not moral perfection. It is a family trait kind of a statement. He says, if God is that way, and he is, then you must be like he is. Boy, this is tough stuff. But if you find yourself hearing this going, I don't know if I can do that, then I would say congratulations. With this, Jesus takes us right back to the first beatitude, the the first introduction statement of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, the ones who just can't get it done on their own, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. I'll close this way. Who do you hate? Not the way we tend to use that word, but the way Jesus uses it here. Who is it that you hold at arm's length in your life? Where's the love? What Jesus says here is, when we get this right, we will be brilliant. We will shine in a culture that celebrates division. But if you choose not to follow his teaching, you're going to be tarnished. You're going to look just like the world. As a church, I'm so grateful that we have chosen to not hold people at arm's length. People who come to this church on a daily basis, on a daily basis, may not fit the typical picture of a First Baptist Church person. But our church has chosen to say, we will love people. And God smiles, I think. Let's pray. And as we pray, let me just give you this clarifying statement. If you try to do this in your own strength, you're not going to make it. This is not us summoning up some kind of ability to be bigger than we are. In order for us to be um, consistent and to be effective as reflectors of God's glory, we have to know Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him, you need to. I don't know how to say it other than that. You need to know Jesus Christ, not just so that you can settle your eternity, but also so that you can have a life today that God intended you to have. The life that Jesus gives is a life that just absolutely will blow your mind. But you can't do it in your own strength and you can't do it without a relationship with Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you to that first. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, I want to talk to you about that. I don't know why you would leave when you have an offer like that in front of you. If you know Christ as your Savior, then he holds this standard up and he says, this is what I expect of my followers. So start identifying. Ask God to identify those people in your life that you have marginalized and hold at arm's length. Maybe it's a class of people. Maybe it's an individual. We're going Thanksgiving this week. You're going to be around family people. And sometimes that's hard to do. Love your enemies. Pray for those. Father, use this time to be glorified and change lives is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. You come.